Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Uh, my guest today is, is an old friend of mine. Uh, it's Margaret Robertson. Margaret is the, the game director at PlayDots. She's an industry liaison at the New York Game Center, and she was formerly the, the editor of Edge. Um, I'm going to keep this intro relatively brief because I'm sure you've already noticed this is quite a long episode. I think potentially this might be the longest episode I've released. But there is a, a totally valid reason for that because every week I sit down to, to edit the show and make sure there's no audio glitches and to make sure that just the, the show has got a good kind of snappy pace and, 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 it, and it feels good to listen to. And when I was listening back to Margaret's episode to edit it, they just... There just didn't seem to be much to take out. Everything seemed to be really interesting. Uh, and hopefully, you know, if I find it interesting, therefore, by proxy, uh, you will too. Okay, so uh, admin stuff, I guess, and then we'll just get on with the, with the excellent chat. Um, if you would like to get in touch with the show, as always, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. If you have the, the money and the inclination, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Um, any donations very gratefully received and, and go back into making the show as good uh, as it possibly can be. If you like the show, but you don't like it quite enough to actually put any cold, hard cash uh, into it, then please do rate and review the show on iTunes, share it around social media and stuff, tell people in real life. Like, I can't stress enough uh, how useful that is to help grow the audience of the show and introduce new people to it and just thanks to everybody who who does who does that every every week you know the audience is growing and it's it's a real thrill to, to realize just quite how many people are listening and downloading and, and enjoying the episode so so thanks very much for that uh okay brief i'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest but until then let's get on with the show so sold on new york that was a, a lovely little tale um we should do like just purely for the sake of a formality though let's let's do a a formal introduction so i can cut it into place so uh margaret welcome to the show thanks so much for coming on uh, if you don't mind would you introduce yourself i don't mind at all uh my name is margaret robertson currently game director at a company called play dots uh, we make games like Dots and Two Dots and Dots and Co. You may spot a theme. Mm -hmm. uh, and in uh, earlier days of my career, uh, I helped run an alternative game studio called Hide and Seek um, and was for a while editor-in-chief of Edge magazine back when magazines were a thing. <laughs> I actually, I spoke to um, Hannah Nicklin just a, a week or two ago mm. from Hide and Seek. She was wonderful. Um, I'm sure she still is. Yeah, no, no, she she is. I I I didn't know. Uh, I didn't realize that you'd all work together. It was about halfway through yeah, I realized I, that she used to sit next to Mark and do hide and seek stuff. Right, right. I I think I missed. We didn't quite cross over. I think I'd come a, 
I, I, I know her, of course, and share your opinion that she's wonderful. Um, I think I'd come over to open the New York office by that stage. So I was only a, a visitor. Uh, Mark and I never crossed over, really. I think we hired Mark after I left. So ah, okay. uh, we, um, we, I mean, we communicated, obviously, but we, were, we weren't in the same room that often. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we will get to that, Margaret. But let's uh, let's wander back, and uh, if you can, if you can remember such a thing, what was your your very first experience of a video game? So this this is now longer ago than I care to count. Uh, I think it was it was a C sixty four game. Mm-hmm. My friend Helen Oram at school, her dad had bought a. Computer. I mean, I didn't. I. I couldn't have at the time. I couldn't have told you what the name of the thing was. I don't think. Um, but I was around at her house after school one day, and I think we played a game called Harrier Attack. Sounds uh, very Commodore sixty four. Doesn't it? It's kind of like archetypal. Of, yeah. Of the period. Uh, what it certainly was was a vertical scrolling combat airplane game where you were shooting at things and, and dropping bombs. Um, from looking at screenshots, Harrier Attack, I think is the is the best candidate, and um, just it seemed fun. I don't, I actually don't remember it captivating me that much. It was probably very hard, uh, or certainly very unforgiving. Yeah, yeah. And um, and there wasn't there wasn't kind of much to inspire you in terms of the visuals or the the atmosphere. So that, but it may be so to seed. Yeah, but, but weirdly, I mean, would you have been like aware enough of the, that these kind of things existed? It's not like, oh my god, I'm controlling the TV, or it was just like, okay, here's here's one of these games that I've been hearing about. I don't. I had quite a sheltered upbringing, so I don't. I definitely kind of didn't have any awareness of these as sort of a commercial product. Okay. Um, I think, though, weirdly, my the answer I want to give to this is a is a thing that isn't really a game at all but was maybe super influential some years earlier than that my dad for work had got one of those amstrad word processors yeah. you know the green green screen um and that came with <laughs> these two uh i can't remember what size of disc it took it was a weird uh, bespoke size of disc anyway two of those that had basic on them Okay, perfect. Um, and I was—I wasn't really interested. I was really pretty young, I think. My brother, who's a lot older, got interested, and he would write interactive quizzes for me. Were they, um, were they least... fun, nice quizzes, or like I'm immediately thinking Big Brother quizzes are going to be like who smells worst? Yeah, there does. There was a big. There was some Big Brother ringing in there, but. Little kids are relatively predictable, yeah. so this is this is weirdly the thing I remember. It's not it is not going to sound very funny, but I it it, it um, burned a deep groove into me. I think um, I think one of the questions was what's the capital of France, and I very proudly typed in Paris, and the, and then the quiz said something like don't be such an idiot margaret it's capital f <laughs> but the the fact that this thing knew my name and and had been able to anticipate what i was going to say and i knew like i i knew my brother had written it i wasn't in any delusion about 
you know, I didn't, I didn't think this was AI. I didn't yeah, think this yeah, was yeah. like a war games moment. But that was a very early experience with a computer. And what it told me about computers was that humans can make them do fun, clever, entertaining, unexpected things. And where, and whereabouts so, in, the, in the country was this? This was in Edinburgh. At some distance from Scotland's Silicon Glen, no. which I don't even know <laughs> if it existed yet. Um, yeah, it was it was strange. I mean, it was very strange for my my dad to have this. My dad's a, he's a he's a church minister. He's a Church of Scotland minister. So up until this point, he'd been writing his sermons longhand every Sunday, and indeed, we'd been typing out. Uh, he would he would hand write out. Um, the kind of orders of service for the congregation, and then we would duplicate them in this thing called a, uh, a banda machine. Uh, I've heard I of this. Yeah, I can't even really explain how it worked. It was sort of the size of an arcade machine. It's not a bad thing. It sounds uh, super bad exciting. Equivalent. They were sort of weirdly magical. There was some strange chemical stuff happening inside. It's sort. I mean, I guess it's sort of a kind of amalgamation of uh, screen printing and uh, photographic exposure, chemical development, or uh, I can't really figure out how to work. But here's what you could do is you wrote on a magic sheet. You had to not make any mistakes because it was a magic sheet. Okay. And then you put the magic sheet in the top of the thing and then you could turn a handle and duplicates of the thing came out the bottom. And the thing that was always distinctive about it was the ink that came out was this strange purple color, this kind of pinky purple color. And that was that was the only color the ink could be. It wasn't that you'd picked a purple cartridge. It was this is this was the chemical. This yeah. is how it worked. But there was no other. This is pre-photocopiers. There was no other way to do it. And so this machine lived in a strange corner of the freezing cold manse rectory that we grew up in uh, and the hope was one day that we could go beyond it so despite the fact that my dad had this very kind of old-fashioned job and most of it was driven by you know books and candles and yeah cups cups of tea what you're also trying to do is put out printed content to hundreds of people many times a week and so you end up accumulating technology uh to do that so the computer came and then eventually a photocopier did come and, you know, that kind of moved us off. So I, I, it was this weird mix of sheltered upbringing in terms of not really knowing about cool kids things, but at the same time having, rel especially in Scotland, having relatively early access to um, business technology, but understanding that you could kind of um, there was potential there to, to play yeah, basically you could you could kind of corrupt it turn it into things so I mean a photocopier is a pretty certainly back then a photocopier is a pretty fun toy for a kid all kinds of things you could make um, yeah. by the time I was a, an early teenager we were you know I was using it to make with help of my friends make you know a, a comedy I think we didn't know that fanzines were a thing but it was kind of that um, that's that amazing vibe. really weirdly I had um, like I grew up not sort of super strict Catholic, but my mum was mm. very involved in the church. Um, she's got a medal from the Pope, if you if you can believe Whoa. such a thing. Yeah, for being so good at it. But anyway, um, so we'd spend a lot of time hanging out at the church and there was youth clubs and stuff. And one of the priests there had like was one of the most technically savvy people 
uh, I'd ever met. Right. He was amazing. We played, I remember playing Jimmy White's Whirlwind Snooker <gasps> over the internet. He had like a modem, like with a proper, put the phone in the cradle modem. It was like, this is amazing. I'm making so many skeptical faces right I know, it's terrible because <laughs> you immediately start assuming, well, of course he did. He's, he's, he's a Catholic priest. <laughs> you wanted the oh, internet no, no, as soon no, as no, possible. no, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was none of that at all. It was just, are you really? Jimmy Wise ruined snooker over a modem? I never knew such a thing was possible. It's exciting. I'm sure, maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. But they, they, he, those two things are really strong in my head. That no, he had I'm a sure. modem and he had Jimmy White's whirlwind snooker, and we could get on sure. the internet. But before we even knew what the internet was, that's terrible. Right. I immediately went to the the molestation <laughs> because he was well, a really really lovely guy, and there was like nothing of the sort. Um, <laughs> really, it's, a, it's a it's a truth that. It should always be acknowledged. Absolutely, it should. But I, I sullied that that nice memory there. Um, so, but was there like that? You know, it seems like you had access to this kind of early technology. Did that that clearly inspired something in you? So, but that one experience with this uh, Harrier attack game that didn't really spark anything off. You weren't looking for other games necessarily. You just liked the playfulness of the tech. Well, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the time sequence here is. I could maybe do some kind of archaeology to figure it out. What I do know is that by the time I was 11 or 12, the thing I wanted most in the world was an Atari ST. Why the Atari ST? That's weird. Yeah, right. And I don't know where that came from. Were you really into music production? (laughs) That's all I remember. I'm assuming assuming it was a boy I liked, right? That's That's how that happened um there certainly there certainly was a boy i liked at the time who cared about computer games i I, again i can't quite get the sequence i can't get a feel in my head quite i don't feel like he had one so i don't i don't entirely know but i do know that i launched a campaign trying to convince it was a big deal to ask my parents for one because it was a very 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 expensive present because of course it didn't you know it didn't come with a monitor you had to have a monitor. It didn't plug into a TV, so it was it was kind of asking for two presents, two big electrical purchases in one. But I launched this big campaign about how I was going to learn. I was going to use it for homework, and I was going to learn to do art on it. And I was going to, you know, I think I couldn't even articulate that I was going to learn to code because that wasn't. Yeah, but all of those things are true exist. as well. Just that you can also um, play fun games on it. Tons and tons of games. And it came in, I, I mean, boy, do I still remember the box. It came in one of those boxes. It comes. It came with a bunch of games. Um, and so on the box, which I think I must have been going into stores and eyeing up, where there was a there was a game store kind of on my way home. I think I could, I could um, it was just at the bus stop, so I could see out of the bus window and peer into the uh, store window. Um, Under a spotlight, obviously, yeah. in the middle of the all, window display. All these... Yeah, right. <laughs> this, this exciting new piece of technology, and there were just these little, like twenty little postage stamp size screenshots on the back of the box of all of the different games, and I, it just seemed like this incredible sort of chocolate box of possibilities. And um, somehow my parents did it, um, and I don't know. It's weird. I wonder if they remember it, and I wonder if they feel like it was instrumental. I think at the time they were just kind of annoyed that it. That I didn't do any of the things that I said, and I they would come in and I instead of tidying my bedroom, which I was supposed to have done, I would be playing games. But they didn't. I mean, video games weren't. They just weren't a. They weren't a cultural presence. They weren't a thing. Yeah. I don't think. 
you know, it, it wasn't, you know, now it's kind of commonplace to make jokes about your, your children being on their phones all the time or, or playing games all the time. And they just, it just wasn't common enough for people to have a kind of specific response. I think my parents didn't feel that different about it than when they came in and I hadn't tidied my room because I was reading a book. Yeah. I mean, um, but was it like, were you, were you sold on this purely from this, you know, this image of this thing in a, in a, in a shop window? Or were you, like, would you have been that? Uh, exposed to any of the magazines or anything or any of like mm. the, as, as as much as there was you know it was still very niche there was there was at least still still some cultural um appreciation Co- of it at least content. in the magazines and content, yeah, yeah. yeah and definitely not magazines i was at that point i i didn't have any money to spend on magazines but i would manage to sneak mostly copies of kerrang was my oh, magazine okay. of choice at that point um or uh, occasionally Metal Hammer if they had a good flexi disc on the cover. <laughs> um, so it wasn't magazine. I mean, I think it just must have been at school. And I just, I think it was just, I think I don't remember because it was so effortless and obvious. It was yeah. like, oh, hey, Margaret, there's a video game here. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want that. That's it. That's the thing I want. Give me that. I, it just, I kind of, it's not as if I needed talked into it or, or converted. It yeah. was just like, oh, yeah, that thing. That's for me. Sure. Um, and I think certainly I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a place that girls weren't welcome. Um, and so, yeah. And then when I got it, I, I just, it became my primary passion pretty much from then on. And what was Um, like, was it, was there any kind of standouts in like that early batch of games that you were like, oh my God, I didn't know they could do this. Well, I didn't know they could do anything, so I didn't. That wasn't quite. That wasn't the source of amazement. The source of amazement was just this thing is, uh, you know, an an impossible, exciting adventure. So I guess standouts. Oh, there was so much. I mean, I miss, I miss everything about this. So I think the first thing I played was a game called Ranorama, which you will note is my handle on Twitter. Yes, yes, yes. So called handles. Um, so Ranorama is a roguelike, although I had no idea that that was a thing. Uh, top-down 2D platformer, a uh, 2D um, adventure roguey thing. Uh, you play a frog, Mervyn the Frog. You were previously in a, uh, an assistant in a magician's office, right? Magician's I've never played Ranawama. Um, you meddle, despite your tutor telling you not to meddle. You get turned into a frog, and now you need to redeem yourself by doing a thing and you get probably you get sucked into another dimensional or something i can't remember um but this thing had eight levels uh procedurally generated even though i didn't know that was a thing um and you have to map out each dungeon in turn basically <laughs> oh, it's the best game and so you're running around as a frog you're um fighting bad guys sometimes they drop runes you can use the runes to give you your like roguelike power-ups so you get yeah. better and better fireballs you get better armor i think a little hazy but frog every armor. now and again so mostly yeah mostly obviously magical frog armor okay, okay. Um, mostly you're shooting fireballs at people at like creatures but every now and again you meet a dark wizard and you can't kill a dark wizard with fireballs obviously everybody knows that yeah, yeah. what you have to do is go and touch them and when you touch them you trigger an anagram battle. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Except 
uh, the anagram battle is always uh, a battle to unscramble the letters Ranarama. That's it. <laughs> Every single time. That's what it is. Um, so one of the reasons that I think my <laughs> put Ranarama for my Twitter name is I've I've just you don't actually type it. You you left right swap okay, pairs okay. of letters. Uh, and that's why Ranarama is kind of genius because there's the letters are a lot the same but crucially different and you you know when you're doing it against the clock but it was i don't know it just felt great when you nailed that that sequence you're like boom take that dark <laughs> wizard i just i just anagrammed your ass um and i loved the each layer of dungeon that you went down they like changed the floor tile pattern and the palette of the world and you met new weird creatures and it just seemed brilliant so that was a huge deal and then in terms of stuff that i put played that was kind of actually good i think it would i mean probably picks there would be captive um which i guess is also kind of a roguelike i haven't thought about this so captive has maybe my favorite video game story ever uh so it's a faux 3d oh god dungeon master we should probably also talk about but let's talk about captive faux 3d Dungeon Explorer, um, procedurally like, uh, generated type thing, um, like Doom, but it's not real 3D. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. all done with it's all done with tiles. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you're gonna the 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 pattern each. Well, no, hang on, let me tell you the story because it's a bit better. You are a petty criminal in the future or an alternate future or whatever. Who knows? Um, and you get convicted. But in the, this version of the future, we no longer put people in prison, because that's cruel. We put them in suspended animation for the length of their sentence. Okay. Um, this is long enough ago that I think this was relatively fresh sci-fi thinking. Seems a little tired now. Um, and so that happens to you, that's fine. Except, so you go into cryo or whatever, like suspended sleep, mm -hmm. maybe not cry. Uh, you wake up and everything's weird. You're not in a... Um, so this is all... Remember, this is ST days. This is all obviously in the novella. This is not... So this isn't just like a little scroll a scroll before the, the game, yeah? I don't, I don't think... It, I can't remember. I don't think it was in the game. I think, I think you had to read it. Because I remember the opening of the game with perfect clarity because i'll describe it in a second so you wake up it's all wrong you're not in the facility you're supposed to be you're in like a shitty storeroom okay it's locked you can't get out at all you're never going to get out locked from the outside and there is screaming outside and you can't you don't know why you also don't know how long you've been there something something weird and terrible has happened maybe maybe you were under for a week maybe you know you were supposed to be under for two years whatever but maybe it was a week maybe it was 20 years you don't know all you know is that this terrible unexplained stuff has happened and you're trapped um so you search the room to see if you can find anything and you find a thing called a briefcase computer <laughs> i shouldn't laugh that's call, quite good you might call a laptop <laughs> but this is before <laughs> we invented laptops so they were briefcase computers um and you open it up and this is the beginning of the uh, of the game is a little hand-drawn sprite 3D 
faux 3D sequence of you opening this suitcase computer um, and the, it opens up and the top half of it is a screen and the bottom half of it is like a bespoke control panel with cool buttons and all the rest of it. And then you, the cam, the, the, it's not a camera, but the fake camera zooms in on that bottom part of the uh, suitcase and that is now your game screen. That's your, that's your HUD for the game screen. And it turns out that what this briefcase computer is, is a remote control for droids for like drone droids and so you're in control of these four droids which is cool you have no idea where they you've no idea where they are and you have no idea where you are but the game is now that you are going to try and pilot these droids to rescue you that's that's an amazing setup it's I seriously as I said it's best story in video games I think it's maybe the best story in video games so this is a game where you're going to like land on they can go in spaceships they you're going to land on planet after planet after planet there's terrible war and chaos everywhere you're going to explore each facility to see if it's the right one then you're going to destroy each facility on the way out for reasons that I can't really fully remember but it's because they're full of monsters and clearly bad so okay. you, it's like kind of that descent thing where you and, and purely for the movie. for the process of elimination, you know, it makes it easier. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, yeah, I'll blow right. that one up, and, right? Next and also one. for the processes of killing you more often because it's a legendarily impossible game. Okay. Um, but here's the thing: the way that you're going to know you've won because you're you're in a camera in the droid's head, and then all of that stuff was so good. Like even the cam, like every bit of the droid was um, upgradable, um, so they could get better lasers and they could you know be stronger. But you could also upgrade their cameras. So if you had a cheap camera on your droid that you were viewing from, then you got like a shitty black and white version of the world. And then you bought a better eye and then you could see it better. It's cool. But the way that you would know that you'd won the game is that you would open a door in a facility. And when you went in, you would see a man sitting on a bed typing into a laptop, into a briefcase computer. That's amazing. Right? That would would be the moment. Oh, that's so Um, good. Except, I think, it. I think the game is maybe unwinnable. I think if you read up on it, there's a flaw, and it. You know, one. You know, one. That is so heartbreaking. It's it's amazing. So that's that's amazing. Someone needs to Uh, make that game again because that. Oh man, there's so much potential. Just go, just go play it. Still great. But no, would it still be great though? Is it not one of those ones? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I've, 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 I've played it in the last three or four years. Uh, super racist shopkeeper. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. That's Wait, not is like that a, another not, game? No, that's, oh. I was going to say that's also not an enemy type. That's not, <laughs> that's not a thing. Yeah, the design of the shop is is not a thing that you would do now. Uh, but other than that, no, it, it's pretty. I think it's pretty great. I think it the, it's still looks incredibly iconic. Like the HUD design is amazing. Enemy design is pretty fun. The stuff with the droids is so cool. It's yeah, it's super great. Uh, Midwinter, probably also one of the most overlooked masterpieces. I've not uh, heard of any of these games, Margaret. This oh, is, this is okay. Crazy. So, so, so Midwinter, I'm legitimately angry about. I think Midwinter is. Um, were these like ST exclusives, or were they kind I mean, of? I mean, nothing was. I bet there was. I bet there were Amiga versions. You couldn't. You couldn't, afford, you couldn't afford to live on Atari ST proceeds no, alone. That was never going to work. Uh, midwinter. Okay. Oh, you could get Midwinter for the Amiga and the PC, so it should have done well. I can't. I don't know how to do justice to Midwinter. Um, 
if you if I tell you the stats, it sounds like a just cause game. Okay. It's like um, it was real 3D. It was like 32, like 32 square kilometers. I think was the island that you were on. You were the. This is post. This is back when we thought there was going to be a new ice age, not global warming. Okay. So this was post terrible climate change freeze. Nearly everyone's dead. A few people are managing to to make it work on you know kind of um, islands that used to be the Azores or whatever, which are now covered in forty feet of snow. But there are. Uh, there's geothermal heat vents that you can reach and so little tiny communities cling on. Mm-hmm. You are Captain John Stark. You're the sole policeman on this ti- effectively this tiny rural community. It's like if, if you imagine a game that's about a Scottish village with 50 inhabitants. That was my first thought as well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly the right vibe. It's, it's Hamish Macbeth, but, you know, with death and skiing. Um, <laughs> Sold. <laughs> so you wake up one day you're just out on normal patrol and through your amazing binoculars you see an invading army on the southern peninsula there's just tanks and shit and this is like like first person like 3d yep. yeah yep 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 um you view the world through you've got a it's it's visually stunning you view the world through, you've got a kind of standard HUD that is everything. You wouldn't believe how much I'm waving my arms around right now. There's a standard <laughs> HUD, which has all your basic stuff. And then you, you, the middle of the screen is you looking at the world, but the you view it through whatever like vehicle or form you're in right now. So yeah. mostly you view, you're viewing it through your like ski goggles. Yeah, no, I'm um, looking at, I'm looking at the screenshot of it now. It looks, yeah. it looks confusing. It's, it's, like, it's, oh, it's so good. So uh, you've got your rifle. It's, it's maybe it's more like a tiny Swiss village is the better kind okay, of thing. Okay. Okay. Like it's, you know, it's a world where you do expect the the nice local policeman to turn up on skis with a rifle on his back, but he's not. He's not like a soldier. He's not a badass. He's just your nice local policeman who's you know, yeah. got a rifle in case he needs to. You know, know, put a, weirdly, put a I'm, I'm set of its misery. I'm looking at the HUD. The thing that it reminds me of, just maybe because it's fresh in my head, is. Um, the breath of the wild like in terms of like here is your topographic information and it has like temperature and time and all that sort of stuff so i'm living in a breath of the world bubble because i haven't got it yet so i'm avoiding every single screenshot and review and conversation and tweet so i've no idea what you're talking about and i don't care to learn okay fine <laughs> yeah, fine but so that's good though that's i mean i um, i apologize if that's a massive it's not a massive spoiler, no no no, but no, it's, still. no it's, fine, it's fine i'm just i'm teasing uh so you have to defend your tiny community against this army uh to do that you've got your rifle you're just a dude though you're just one person with a pea shooter and these guys have tanks um so you can run around you can ski you can steal their snowmobiles and drive around in their snowmobiles um but you're never going to win this fight on your own so you have to recruit help from the village and the village just has a bunch of ordinary people in it. It has like eight-year-old kids, friends, people you know. You have personal relationships with each of these individuals. So some of them like you, some of them don't like you because they think maybe you had an affair with their wife, even though you didn't. Um, 
And as you recruit them, you gain control over every single one of these individuals and you live the game in two hour slices where you cycle through each of these characters and control them for the same two hours. So you, you live the hours of, you know, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, as, is he John Stark? Am I getting Game of thrones ified I don't know. I'd believe Maybe John you. Stark. Um, so you live two hours of, you know, here's two o'clock to four o'clock and then you get him some hours with the old granny and then you go and do the same two hours with the jealous husband. Um, and all of them have different, they all also have different relationships with each other. So it's no use sending the guy who thinks you have an affair to go and recruit his ex-wife because she's still mad at him because he accused her of infidelity when it wasn't true. This is blowing my mind, but, Margaret. Yeah. Um, and then as you start to get better at all of this stuff, you can uh, steal or find hang gliders. If you want to go hang gliding, you can do that. It's hard, but it's great. And how do, you, how, do, how do you stop traveling. them, though? Is it like, you know, putting traps and stuff? Oh, I never, I, I never, I don't think I've ever beaten a game in my life. Who the hell knows? Yeah, you, you, um, you steal a lot of tanks and you recruit a lot of people and you um, plan careful strategies. Yeah, you can like leave mines and things, I think, to blow stuff up. Um, but I've, I've, I have still never been in a game that comes close, I think. You know, I mean, just cause you're living in a, you're, you know, you're maneuvering around a world that is full of visual richness and uh, incredible detail. And there's all kinds of physics possibilities and all, all the rest of it. But actually the sense of space and environmental danger is probably even stronger in midwinter. And the relationships with the people, which are just all the portraits, it's just portraits, static portraits, and then well-written text. It just felt like a game for grown-ups. I still rarely play games that really feel like they're for grown-ups i wonder why like this th one did why do you think that that like i could totally imagine a like a, a far cry or a just cause like borrowing that template you know with that, that same idea of this kind of but the, the kind of small town you know interpersonal relationships and stuff and then suddenly this new invading force that just makes it just infinitely more interesting of a world to be in there's so much more ownership of it like why I'm sure that must have occurred to people designing these games. I wonder if it's just a thing of the technology. It's, oh, no, that's way too much work. Let's just have them run it's, around and shoot things. It's it's a thing about the technology, but it's not about the work. I mean, most of these games I'm talking about were made by one or two people. Exactly. That's that, that's kind of um, what I mean, yeah. like, And, and that was possible uh, as opposed to... Yeah, although I still don't really understand how Midwinter happened. It's insane. I mean, I, I have a theory that I can't really back up, which is there's something very different about european like especially 8 and 16 bit european game development because the machines that you were making it on weren't consoles they were home computers and you started out from this place of this is a grown-ups tool not a kid's toy and there was much less of an assumption that your market was driven by children and young people and the people who were figuring this stuff out on their own we're just mostly making games for themselves or for you know from that mindset certainly yeah. i mean they were, they were intended as commercial products but but there was no sense that they had to pander to a younger audience and there was no sense that they had to compete with action movies it was like oh no no you, you've got this powerful home computer that can do a bunch of impressive things and this is one of the impressive things that your home computer can do and i should put something out there that's you know yeah. that's worthy of the machine that you're running it on and the very fact you've got a computer is like you're interested in this kind of 
detail and intricacy and, and complexity. So of course it, you're going to want this, you know. It definitely felt that way. So yeah, I think I think that's why Mid Midwinter was very much not an action movie, despite the fact that you can shoot spy planes out of the sky and ski over, you know, ski off the top of a mountain and then flip into your hang glider. Yeah. It it felt much more it was slow paced, small world, daunting stakes, lots of failure. You know, th- these were games that you expected to win once in your life. Yeah. Um, but to play over and over and over. So that was that was one side of it. And then the other side of it was was the kind of the cool, weird uh, kind of um, illicit vibe. So there was stuff like, um, do you remember Xenon 2? Do you remember the, the uh, Xenon 2 that had the bomb the base yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, theme song? So that was like the first time I played anything. I was like, oh, this, is, this isn't this is nerdy. This is this is cool people like video games too. Not that I – I mean, computer games, of course, is what we called them. We didn't yeah, absolutely. Video games at that point. So that kind of stuff, loved that game. Uh, the first, first, you know, shmup I'd ever played, not, not – something that is now by any means in the annals of great shmup design but just i loved it so much played it a ton um but that felt part of a world that was dominated a lot by the cd community so i mean obviously i couldn't afford any of these games we didn't have much money and i never would have been allowed to spend any money that i had on this stuff so i survived on a weird underground uh, community at my, high, my 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 senior school, secondary school, um, where everyone who kind of had either I mean there was a lot of there was all of that ST Amiga rivalry, yeah, and that meant that anyone who had an ST kind of clubbed together because we knew that we we needed all the help that we could get. <laughs> and so when I was when I was like twelve or thirteen, I'd be lining up outside a classroom to go into class. And some sixth-year guy who I didn't know would just be walking past the line and would just, you know, give me a nod and just hand me five floppies and then walk off. And I didn't know who that was, but he knew I was one of the ST people. Did you have like a special badge just, that you all wore just, just to recognize got, I don't know. I just, I just think, I don't know. We just knew. You could see each other and in each other's eyes. Yeah, we could see the shame and anxiety <laughs> in each other's eyes. Um, and so they all came from... When a new game came out, you couldn't copy it. They had copy protection. So you needed somebody to crack it. Um, and so this is what CDs were. They, were. they were cracked discs. This was before compact discs were invented. And there were uh, kind of gangs across the country Um like the Medway Boys and the Pompeii Pirates, um, who were in like unofficial, well, not I mean not unofficial, intense rivalry to be the first team to crack one of these games, and they would put them out on discs, and the disc was always would always come with additional content like tech demo, lots of bouncing silver balls in <laughs> rainbow environments. Oh with man, I love all that met- so much. Metallic scrolling text. It's like a really uh, low-stakes warriors. <laughs> um, but it was—it felt really illicit. It was—it was one of the first 
bits of contact I had with kind of a, a real underground culture. Yeah. And um, it it was yeah it was it was it's this weird mix of like scary exciting but also warm and cuddly because you were like oh we're all in this together and we're yeah, part of just this like me you know yeah and and i belong here um yeah i was, I was curious I, I was i wanted to ask about that because like the, the way you, you, you talk about these games and like so passionately and they, they clearly had a, a big impact do you think is that just kind of in retrospect over the kind of career you've had or was it at the time was were you that passionate about it and Therefore, were you kind of? Do you think you evangelized about it? Like, was it something you wanted to to share with people? Uh, I was definitely this passionate about it. I don't. There's a there's an intensity now that comes with the hindsight of knowing that these games are kind of forgotten or they were dead ends. Yeah, and I'm definitely more able to articulate what was so inspiring and interesting about them. Yeah, but it was my it was my number one interest the whole time I was at school um, you know if you came over if you were my friend and you came over to my house we would play video games that's what and, then, and my friends hated it because everything i had was single player and that basically meant that i would play games and expect <laughs> you to watch but yeah that was that was my thing it wasn't all i did but it was yeah know, yeah it was uh, a main interest and then when i uh when i left school i took a year out and traveled and my very very good friend um I believe asked if he could borrow my game collection while I was gone because I had a bunch of good stuff and he wanted to play it. And I was like, sure, I, I'm not going to be using it. And then when I got back, he said that had never happened. What? And to this day, I don't know what to make of that. Like where, so, so where, where, where were the games? They never materialized. What? So many, many things are possible. He took him and forgot. It was a year. We were kids, you know. Yeah. Okay. He took him and decided to keep him and not tell me because he wanted to keep him. But I have to say that he was a very nice man. It would be out of character for him. I'm wrong, and we'd like talked about it, but it never happened. And then my parents tidied up my room while I was away, and they thought that these things didn't matter. I, nothing, nothing, never, we never figured it out. I, I kind of fell out with the well, you nice would. boy, um, which I regret because he was one of the good ones. Um, and that kind of killed it. So I'm like, well, that's, I'm done. That's the, it's the only way I had to play games. Was that something you were kind um, of looking forward to, though, like coming back? Yeah. To like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, this is kind of probably Game Boy yeah. era at best, maybe yeah i mean i did i just i just didn't know about any of that and um <laughs> so that was it dead as a doornail oh that the is, end that of is my heartbreaking life um and then i went to university i went to glasgow university which i hated uh oh. and some months after i got there uh i got a note in my pigeonhole or a letter in my pigeonhole because that's how it worked what, what were you studying in university medieval history okay uh although it was first year so you like doing a bunch of stuff so i was doing that and english and history of art i think why did you hate glasgow um, as well sorry i'm because it rains all the time yeah it's, it's a beautiful day today 
but okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. It rains a lot. No, it's it true. does rain often, all the time. Often only briefly and, you know, but, um, and I was simultaneously too mature and massively out of my depth. Okay. So a lot of the kids at Glasgow, you know, in Scotland, you you go to university younger than you do uh, in England. So a bunch of people there were, were fifth years who hadn't done their sixth year. Um, so, so, you know, they're 16, 17 year old yeah. kids. And I, I mean, I, I was only 17, I guess, but I, I'd lived in China for a year. I'd been teaching English at a university in China for a year and had done a lot of traveling independently, you know, covered thousands of miles by train and found myself in all kinds of terrible predicaments and had my own apartment and, you know, you, 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 you'd seen some things, stuff. Margaret. Yeah. I, I killed a lot of rats. I, you know, I'd been stranded in a lot of ditches. I, I, you know, and I came back to this world of 16 year olds who had left home, but often not by much, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a big, there's a big catchment area there where people are maybe there from, they're up for Dumfries or, you know, whatever else, but they're home for weekends and, and they, they don't have, yeah, I was, I was, um, and they also didn't really care very much about being at university. They, you know, they just wanted to, party and yeah they were away fun. from home let's let's all get drunk yeah and i i was kind of too serious and too swatty and nerdy but also kind of frustrated about how limited everybody's conversations were and I, I, but at the same time i was terrified of everything and if shy. only you'd had a bunch of games you could sit and play yeah maybe 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 okay so um, anyway anyway letter 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 so i got this crazy letter that said dear miss robertson Glasgow University used to uh, administer a scholarship fund called whatever it is, uh, uh, which uh, I can't remember, you know, which something like which uh, encouraged applicants to write an essay about this thing or the next thing or come in and sit an exam about this thing or next thing. And then uh, the whoever was judged to be the winner would win some money. We no longer have funds to administer this process. However, there are still funds in the scholarship fund. So now what we do is we just simply look at the people who have applied already this year and figure out who got the best exam results at school. And then we just give that person the money. Okay. Uh, and that's you. So here's a check. <laughs> It's a good letter to get. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was astonishing. It like I still remember, like my eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I read down the thing because the first, like the first paragraph, was so discouraging and yeah, weird. It was like, what? I'd never heard of this thing, and you're just telling me that it doesn't work. And I that was a check. It was maybe for two hundred pounds, which was a decently big amount of money then, and especially for a student. Yeah, and I. Oh, okay. By this stage, I had other friends who were students and I would go and see friends at York. Um, my friend there that I was at school with, she was very taken with a, a, a boy she met there. He was, uh, he was in a lot of the drama productions. Um, and she thought, uh, I might like him. Uh, his name was uh, Ollie Welsh, who I think has been on he has he certainly has show previously um and so he and i became an item um and i would go down to stay with him and his flatmate 
and they had uh, SNES. They had a Super Nintendo uh, on which they largely played Mario Kart. Maybe only played Mario Kart. Uh, but I was like, oh, this is a cool thing that like plugs into your TV and you can play with your friends. Hmm. And, and so, uh, uh, were you completely oblivious to kind of the, the consoles, essentially? I mean, not yeah. oblivious, but like, you know, you weren't... Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think oblivious is the right word. Yeah, I think this is this was the first time I discovered. So you didn't know who Mario was necessarily. No. Well, I knew that I knew that there was a thing called Mario, but I'd never seen or played a Mario game. Um, I definitely didn't know what Mario Kart was. Uh, I, it's weird. I can't think of anything else we played. But was that like? Um, were you like, oh my god, I've been missing out? Are you like, oh, that's okay? I'm 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 curious as to where you go I with think, that because yeah, I think I think it was a. It was a bit of both. I mean, for me, and this again, I think has stayed with me my whole life. For me, computer games growing up had been actually a pretty intensely, intimately solitary affair. But the thing yeah. I liked about them was you, you, you hunched in close to this world and nothing could touch you and you just existed in this alternate version of you for however long you were playing. And a thing where you're like all lounging on a sofa together with this thing was was pretty different and then yeah. they were much better at mario kart than i was and so that was kind of limited fun but it just kind of it was a reminder and so when this check turned up again i don't really remember making this decision especially but i i think I, what i thought was this is a miraculous windfall this will never happen to me again in my life i'm gonna i'm not gonna spend this on something sensible because this is this is the, this is a moment that the universe is saying a magic thing just happened to you. Yeah. Do you know, enjoy the magic. And so I spent that money on a thing called a Sony PlayStation. And I think with it, I didn't really have any money. It, it wasn't, it wasn't brand new. It had been out for a little while, but I'd never seen one or played one. And I didn't have any money for proper games. So I had to buy the cheap secondhand games. And I think I got it with a thing called Kalik the Blood, okay. which is maybe, is maybe the worst doom like ever made uh, but it was it was 4.99 or something so it was it was my best bet um and yeah and so then i then i had a sony playstation and for the next five years because i wasn't i didn't i never quite settled at college i left glasgow and moved to london but i never that never quite felt right either so i was constantly traveling to uh see people and um, I would wrap my PlayStation up in my pajama trousers to keep it safe, <laughs> put it in my bag, <laughs> and take it with me wherever I went. Um, and then that was that. Was, so that was hiatus over. That got me over the the. So why the PlayStation? Just because that was the thing in the shop window with the spotlight on it and the cool screenshots. Like, was there? I mean, I suppose you didn't have enough to get a, a new computer. I wouldn't. I don't think I would have thought to get a computer. Yeah, I think they were just so much money, and the internet wasn't really a thing yet. Or, I mean, it absolutely was, but it for you know someone in mm -hmm. my circumstances, it wasn't a thing. And I didn't. I never. I didn't know about this kind of idea. I don't think that computer games were better. I and mean, so, like, computer computer games were more technically powerful than yeah. console games. Um, I, oh, Declan, I don't know. I feel bad that I don't know. I mean, I, we must have, I must have been having conversations with it, about yeah. it, with these friends in, in York who, who had the Super Nintendo. You should, you should ask Ollie. He'll probably, he'll probably I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen back. I'm going to listen back on that episode because I'm sure there, there was talk of the PlayStation um, University. 
Um, um, yeah, that that's that may have been my PlayStation. That's, and I'm that pretty sure possible. it was a mammoth. There was a mammoth uh, wipeout battle, like back and forth, cross country. That that was the defining that, game of that, that period. W- that was a big deal. That's one of the few games I've ever kind of really been able to hold my own at. And so, yeah, for a long time, I owned about half the tracks on that, and he owned the other half. <laughs> I would bring it up at, week, up at weekends. Yeah. I love that. So, That's brilliant. You know, That's happy what, days. Yeah. So, so, but with this kind of uh, divide that you kind of had growing up, like in terms of computer and video games, like was there, um, this, I may be trying to be a bit too, too neat with this, but was there a game on the PlayStation that kind of crossed back over and you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of, they've kind of met in the middle somewhere here and there we have, this is a new type of thing. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think I, I, I hadn't like clarified that distinction, especially in, you're not thinking about this thing. No, of course not. No. Things as much as I, so I don't, I don't think I had thought, aha, I have had my experiences of home computer gaming and now I'm going to taste the delights of console gaming. <laughs> it was just like, oh, what's cool on the PlayStation? Oh, people like Crash Bandicoot. Let's give that a try. I mean, the thing that, the th- again, the thing that made, uh, this might actually slightly answer the question of why the PlayStation, the thing that made owning one possible was official PlayStation magazine. Because again, oh, course, I, had, yeah. I still had no money. There's no way I could buy full price games. Um, but what I could do was just about, and even this was not a trivial purchase because it was five ninety nine, I think. But I could pretty much buy official PlayStation magazine, which came with demos, and crazily in the Net Eurose days came with Homebrew. So that, really? remember that? The, yeah, there was I that weird. That at all you see um so yeah sony released a a home a home development accessible version of the playstation called the net Eurose. and um you could make things for it i do remember so, that but i didn't I realize that they would put them on demo discs baby, baby baby blitter i think i remember yeah, yeah 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 they were on demo discs that's amazing um so that was an awful lot of what we played and then we rented stuff from the video store uh, and at any stage in this whole period, had it had it occurred to you that maybe this is something I could do or be involved in no, in some fashion? No, no, zero no, percent. So what? Uh, why, why did that change? What changed? I think I got that didn't hit until uh, I I started a PhD after I graduated, and I was reading Edge by this stage. I'd started to get. I was I was at this point kind of waking up. Maybe this is the point at which I woke up to. The fact that I kind of missed a chunk of history, yeah. so I'd never, I'd never kind of grown up through the Nintendo um, machines, um, and I guess it was around the time that Ocarina of Time was coming out, and so I started to get interested in kind of excavating a bunch of that history. Um, emulators were becoming more accessible. Yeah, I had a computer at this stage, so I could start to emulate stuff. Um, I just got really curious about how it all worked and um, what uh, what the history was and what games I'd missed and um, you know consoles I didn't know about and what is this exotic creature called a Neo Geo? Is that a thing I should know about? Um, and playing, 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 uh, and that I guess that coincided with two other things. So one of which was uh my phd going really badly and me getting to a point where i was i think probably really in a pretty deep depression around it and was having difficulty 
kind of functioning. Um, and then the bit that you're more aware of, because it's how you and I know each other, is through reading Edge and spending more time on the Edge forums. Yeah. Um, I was starting to meet people. Actually, it maybe started. Maybe. Maybe the real moment it started was I was, I was read Edge, which I thought was the most glorious thing I'd ever seen. I started reading the Edge forums, and loved those. And then I plucked my courage up to start posting. And I just thought, maybe somebody here, maybe somebody who's on here could give me a job. And so whenever I post anything here, I'm just going to make sure that it's smart and knowledgeable and thoughtful. Because if, I, if, any, thinking of you, if, if anyone's ever going to like click on my name and see my posts, I want them to be good. And so I did that. And meanwhile, the the Edge forum social scene is kind of just about starting to pick up. Uh, and probably round about then, Tony Mott, who was then editor of Edge, got in. Oh, no, who just stopped being editor of Edge and was going to be looking after Game Central on um, yeah, yeah. Teletext. He got in touch over the forum and said, hey, do you want to do you want to have a column? For, you know, no, for no money, but you would have a column. And that was enormously exciting and, and I guess kind of a vindication of the thing that I've been trying to do with like only posting smart stuff. And so no that idea was, that was of... so calculated. That that's that genuinely fascinating to me. <laughs> and it wasn't I don't mean that in like a, in an know. evil sense, but just to yeah. that classic way of, you know, you, you tell kids now like, you know, the the internet is written in ink, you know, you never and nobody right, right, listens, right. obviously, but like to have that thought in your head like even back then even like tangentially like maybe there'd be somebody here like i don't know that that's that shows far more self-awareness than i think 90 percent of more than 90 percent of the rest of the people on the forum well i mean i think it was also sort of cowardice a bit that it was slightly nerve-wracking to like stick your neck out into the crazy traffic that was that forum yeah and so kind of saying giving myself permission to have a persona that was just kind of that person was maybe easier than just diving in there without a plan because it's scary and there is the thing although everybody was always pretty good about it but it is the thing that you know that you're almost the only woman so you don't want i mean it was oh my word it was easier days on that front yeah absolutely uh, but still you're like i i want to i want to be taken seriously and so I have to over deliver in terms of knowledgeability and humor sometimes and unreliability and all that kind of stuff, or I'm not going to last long. That is, um, that is like, I, I put zero thought into anything, <laughs> not zero thought. That's not fair. <laughs> but like I came out with absolutely no apprehension whatsoever. Um, and just, yeah, whatever, just to just chatting with people on the internet. That's, this is exciting. I mean, but I was, I was, also, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's worth also remembering that I got so drunk at the first Edge Forum meeting that I vomited during the group photo. <laughs> so it's not like I was. Which, it's not like I had any idea what I was doing. This is still a recurring story as well. Many, many, many years later. I should hope so. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, yeah, that well, was clearly it, it, it all worked out. Um, like, was that did it, was that your first experience of? Because it, it certainly was for me. Um, a kind of a broadening of the video game community in the sense that, you know, I had friends that I played games with growing up, but not really 
n- n- nobody seemed to be as interested in it as I was. And then suddenly, it's, oh, my, here they all are. They've all just been sitting at home on their computers, clearly. This yeah, is amazing. I, mean, I, 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 I nearly cried, I think. I didn't. Like, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that I'd felt kind of lonely or unpopular, but I'd just never been able to give full voice to this thing that I cared about so much because nobody knew anything about it and you had to expl- you had to start by explaining everything and just to be in a, in a in a room with somebody who knew all the stuff that you knew you could just skip all of those yeah absolutely uh, you know, formalities and just be like I can't now even think of you know what it was but um yeah you fa- I just felt like I could talk finally uh, in a way that I'd never been able to, and 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 have conversations with people who could tell me new and interesting things that I hadn't heard before. Absolutely. I mean, that, um, that, that, it, even now, like the one of the big, um, not um, indirectly probably, but one of the, the reasons I want to see this show is because of we had these. It was like I suddenly discovered people that had these parallel lives to me. Is oh right, this is amazing. We can all just share everything now. And, yeah, and it, that's why you wanted to do like with the show is to do, share these memories of playing games when we were young and i think to be honest i think the the power of that experience is why so many of us are still friends now yeah um that i'm i'm not always great at staying in touch with people but well so many of us are friends and so many of us made it into the industry exactly i mean i think i think we we emboldened each other a lot to try and and to you know to make the connections that we needed to make and yeah I mean I I, I will never forget those days um, and I'm still friends with I, I mean you know and I, I I don't think it's presumptuous to say we'll be friends with a lot of those people for the rest of my life like it's clear ten years old that that's just absolutely you know who we are now so, so and now that, you and I you and I can get on the phone ten years later exactly and, and just carrying on we just spoke last week yeah. So, so how? Although that may that may be just because you're a very good podcast host. Thanks very much, Margaret. Um, a bit of both, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so, how did how did that? I don't know. Like, because you you had this kind of foreknowledge of you know this is maybe something I can do. So, how did you have like a broader plan than that? You seem like somebody who had a lot of ideas as to what might happen and what you would like to do. So, was it simply a case no, of I, I'd like to write I, for these magazines? I I, I love writing i'm really good I, at it i can do this i had cripplingly low self-esteem about all of this stuff so the first the first i think maybe the well yeah the first gaming job i applied to is that martin hollis from goldeneye had just founded his new studio and they needed a receptionist and so i wrote this really heartfelt letter about why i could be a really good receptionist i did not get that job I don't know if he remembers that I applied to be his receptionist. Um, and then the edge job came up and I, I let it go. Because I was in the middle of doing my PhD. I didn't, yeah. you know, I, I didn't know that I was looking for a job. I mean, what was like, what, what was your kind of goal in general? Like just to stay in academia in some fashion? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have, I mean, this is part of the reason the whole thing was disintegrating. I'd done a PhD because I was good at being at university. Was good at exams. I got I got a letter saying you've got a scholarship because you're good at exams. Yeah, that was have a PlayStation. Like, yeah, that's right. That was that was the only thing I'd ever kind of been good at, apart from three levels of wipeout. Um, and so yeah, I was just scared and I didn't want to leave. And none of my friends really had any ideas. Most of most of the people I knew who came out of college were they were temping or you know working in a mailroom or whatever. Yeah. I just didn't just felt really lost and and like I didn't know how to figure myself out so 
yeah, it was just, I mean, the, the edge, I mean, everything was edge, everything without it, I wouldn't be here. There's no question about that. So, uh, Steve Curran, who was working there at the time, he got in touch with me. He was running a feature on games reviews and how they work and if they're good. And as part of that, he was going to get six people who weren't professional video game reviewers oh, to I review remember a video this. game. I remember that, yeah. Um, and the game was, was PNO3, a Capcom, mm-hmm. one of the experimental Capcom game co- GameCube titles. And so the first thing I ever wrote for Edge, the first time my name ever showed up in Edge, was my 200-word PNO3 review as part of that feature. And around that time, Edge reopened... Or I can't remember if they formally reopened it, but word was spreading that they still hadn't settled on a writer. And I'm not kidding. I thought, I'm going to go for this because I think I can get an interview. And if I get an interview, then I'll get to see inside the offices of Edge. And that was my goal. I went, I was so, I wasn't a writer. I was terrible. I didn't know anything about how magazines worked. I did all of this kind of research on how magazines worked and and how journalists talked about journalism. And I went into my interview with... Jai, who was the editor then, and he didn't ask me a thing about that. He asked me about games, and I just my head wasn't in game stuff at all. I was really tongue-tied, and I couldn't kind of think of any examples, and I really blew it. Um, and I came out. I was also by that stage, I had I had my first piece of real freelance, which is Tony at this stage was running. Like, remember those nice equip specials that were like single issue specials on hardware, specific hardware. I don't think so. Um, so I was writing a, they were nice, they're, you know, if you can still find them on eBay or something, I was writing a, my first feature on just as a freelancer on Animal Crossing and I had to go in and do the screen grabs, which I'd never done before and captions and stuff. And I was, I didn't really know what I was doing. And Tony took me out for a drink after all of that. And I was like, it was an interview day and I'd, I'd got the train from London at, you know, 5am or whatever. And I hadn't yeah. really eaten anything so nervous. And this is another story about me getting too drunk, but this isn't how I live my life. I would like to clarify this. this just needs both happen to be true. Um, also, I'm not a large human. So when I say I got really drunk, I mean I had three pints of beer. Um, so I'd had three pints of beer. And Edge had just gone to press. So it was 10.30 at night or whatever. The team was just getting off. And Jirai, and Bath, where the magazine is made, is tiny. So Jirai came into the pub where we were. Uh and uh, who cares? I'd blown the interview. I knew I was dead in the water and I was drunk. So I was like, hey, here's the things I didn't tell you about what's wrong with your magazine. This is terrible and you should change this. And I felt like that. And when you when you covered this game, you didn't mention these things. And I just, I still remember him like with, a, with his back against the wall, kind of nodding in a slightly scared fashion. Uh, and then two days later, they emailed me and said, yeah, you got the job. That's so amazing. I think, I think, God bless him, he saw past my... Do you really think that though? Just like, did you ever? Did you not ever I, ask him? No. Oh man, that is. If you, if you have him on, you can ask him. That is fascinating. Um, so, yeah, and then it's a relatively straight shot from there to here. That's crazy though. I, I'm yeah. so like, did, when you when you got the job and actually sort of went into work, did he like? Here's the things that you told me that were wrong about the magazine. How about you fix them? That's crazy. I don't think so. Well. Things things were busy when I when I got there. Yeah, I mean I, I can't remember. And in this the danger here is these are stories I've been telling for a very long time. So who knows? <laughs> who knows how they really started out? It doesn't matter. That, but, that's, um, that's that's brilliant. Um, yeah, it was. You know, I I was all of those people I owe a lot to. And um, yeah, then getting to work on that magazine and and 
travel for it and visit all the studios I visited and interview all the people that I got to interview was just a, a prodigious privilege. If whatever I know about games now, 90% of it came out of the, the time that I spent there. And was it like, uh, I'm, I'm now just based on kind of the, you're, you're talking about, you know, approaching the forum with a, a thought that, you know, I, I need to not present myself in a certain way, but make sure I'm kind of on, on my game. Like, did you get that once you started working at the magazine in terms of, like, I suppose what I'm thinking is when did you sort of switch to start thinking maybe I'd like to make games? And did you always have that in mind? Like, not maybe I could work here, I'll be nice to, to these people, but just, you know. Not No, not at all. I mean, Edge Edge was Edge was the dream. All I wanted to do was write all the things I wanted to write for Edge and, and, and get it to cover the things that I felt. Like, I was so mad at it when I got there that it had never reviewed a Pokemon game. One of the first things I... Really? Yeah, one of the first things I did was write a feature called It's Super Effective about how good Pokemon was. <laughs> um, uh, Why did so you yeah, never no, review Pokemon I never, game? That's, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, well, that's it, a weird thing. It has since, but they... they yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's hiccups like that always throughout magazine history. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. There's, there's a good reason for it at the time. Um, but yeah, I never saw it as a stepping stone. I always thought, uh, this this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. But then you just kind of get to a point where events overtake you a little bit. And yeah. I did. I was getting more and more uncomfortable with the fact that all I did was sit on the sidelines and criticize. And then that was criticizing not even from a place of particularly deep understanding of what it took to make a thing and that's that's arguably important absolutely as, yeah as a critic your job is to is to sit outside this process but i felt like i i wanted to understand a bit more about the thing that i was critiquing and i was never going to do that until i got my hands dirty so it wasn't so much that i had this burning sense inside me of there are games i want to make more it was an increasingly strong desire to to really touch the insides of this thing that I loved so much. And, yeah, and find I mean, it's it a clear up. passion for, for learning that is, goes through everything here. Um, so we were talking about like working on Edge and this is this is like a super hard question and there's probably a million different answers, but just to get a kind of a sense of, of the period, I suppose, like during your, your, your tenure at Edge, like are there specific games that, that really stand out for you as being formative like in in the ways you understood games and or like changed your perspective on on what what games could be i appreciate you're, how broad and crazy you weren't kidding were you no i know i know uh, so two things sprung to mind when you started asking me to kind of think back one was when katamari damasi arrived in the office so we we'd ordered it we were expecting it i don't think we knew what to expect yeah I think I was mostly excited about the cover art. Oh, it was so good. Still um, is so good. It's one of the best. And yeah, we would, you know, we would, we kind of put our monthly order in with, with Play Asia, who were our um, suppliers of um, rare Japanese games, uh, or rare by um, British standards. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just remember me and, and Ben Schroeder, who was uh, another writer on the magazine at that point, just losing our minds, just just squealing and not not like fanboy squealing, but just like the game started and the music started and we started to understand what the world was gonna be like and it was it was just prodigiously exciting. Weirdly, um, my, my, my 
first experience of Katamari was watching you play through pretty much the entirety of the game. Um, <laughs> is that true? It is. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. It was uh, at one of your, your places in Bath. And right. Yeah, and, it, and it was it was the last level, so it was very much like going from a tabletop to a planet. Basically. Right, 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 right. And it was unbelievable. Like, yeah. because it, this was kind of even, like, I think maybe I knew about it, just people had mentioned it on forums and stuff, but I hadn't right. really had a full understanding of it. And just watching it and just always thinking, surely this has to stop at, at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And then it just, it, it just doesn't. Uh, oh, absolutely amazing. Now you've said that, I remember, I remember coming home from a press trip. Uh, so I'd been probably flying back from the US. Uh, you're exhausted coming back. You're exhausted at the end of a press trip before you then have to do the flight back. And by the time you get off the flight, you're just, you know, you're jet lagged and ruined. And I got home and Guitar Hero had arrived. There was a box uh, on the sofa that was Guitar Hero. And I remember really clearly that I didn't even sit down. I just, I put my suitcase down. I opened the guitar. I plugged the guitar in and I started playing and I didn't, I didn't stop even when it, the pain started (laughs) and uh my very wonderful boyfriend at the time would like he would like i was i would stand there like shaking with exhaustion and he would give me an arm massage until (laughs) i could stand to start playing again and then i'd do two or three more songs and then would have to stop and then he would come and rescue me um because i'd be just been looking forward to it for so long and then it was even better than i I guess this would have been Guitar Hero 1. So you've just never had the experience before. And I was such a big Harmonix fan from yeah. from Amplitude Frequency that that it was just amazing. But I also remember stuff like, it, it felt like a moment when the indie scene was resurgent. Now, you're always taking your life in your hands a little bit about when the indie scene was and wasn't prolific because there's always yeah. stuff happening that you don't know about. But... Um, and weirdly, it was the it was the Japanese scene actually. So, um, do you remember Kenta Cho, who was making a bunch of super abstract? Yeah, he made the brilliant shooters. Uh, shoot-em-ups. Yeah, so they were often like inspired by existing games. He made that amazing one where you could play it in like Ikaruga mode, or I can't remember what the two other games were. So it was like the same shooter, but you could switch the rule set to ape the rule set of these oh, okay. two three other games um and there was also stuff starting to show up for pc i guess it was when n wait was the first one n plus or just n it was just n at the start yeah so n because the pc gamer were downstairs of course and stuff like some of that stuff would feed up from them and some yeah. of it would go the other way um and then there were just other bad pc one-man band things there was a there was a bad super bad looking platformer called noop that was kind of a precursor to some of the uh, kind of ultra hard gravity defying yeah. uh, platformers that came later. So that felt like an important part of the scene. There was that amazing bullet hell GBA game that was just, was just like just nothing. It was just, it was just a bunch of different possible bullet hell sequences, but you could get it on your, your, um, like your GBA flashcards. Was uh, that like a homebrew thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, weird. I, then, I, uh, I don't really associate the, those like with that indie scene. I mean, this obviously this comes up on the show loads. Like the 
mm. when that was because funny enough i was speaking to um to reagan amir about the, the who made n and the various sure. other episodes and kind of over the course of speaking to a lot of different people like it, the kind of the the accepted kind of canon or chronology is that you know xbox live arcade was kind of this rebirth of the indie scene or at least the the, the public face of it but then they were both talking about like how formative like really early flash games were for for those two and and that kind of had passed me by completely i mean i must have played them but i guess i just never associated them as being the same as the video games that i played weirdly yeah i, th- I think that's absolutely true and i think um the pc homebrew scene was still happening and i mean that was early days when i first got to know the the introversion guys um who i hadn't known about I always get this wrong. What was their first game called? Was it the, Darwinia? Uh, no, it wasn't Darwinia. No, it was, it was the, the one before Darwinia. Uh, it was the 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 hacking yeah the virus secret agent game yeah thing. Um, so that was an amazing title. And talking to them about what it meant to be like independent game creators, like they, I mean, they tell a great. I hope they're still telling it. It's a great story about how they got that. Defcon. Sorry, Defcon. De- no, 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 no. Defcon was third. Oh really? Defcon was the yeah the first one. Hang on, um, if, listen. If we're if we're googling Uplink, Uplink, that's it. Um, so they made Uplink, and they wanted to sell it, and they didn't know how to sell it because you couldn't sell it on the internet. That didn't exist. So they walked into maybe HMV or maybe Virgin on Oxford Street and went up to the person behind the register and said, "Hi, you sell video games? Points to video games on." racks we made a video game will you sell our video game which they knew was stupid but they also kind of knew was smart it's like we don't know how this works we're going to find out how it works yeah so we're just going to start asking questions and then finally we'll get somewhere and so that person at the register presumably in a mild state of panic called their <laughs> called their manager and the manager knew that the games came in from a distributor and that then they discovered that distributors existed. And then this man gave them a contact at one of the distributors he knew. And then they called that distributor. He liked the look of Uplink and they got a deal out of it. And then they got Uplink into stores. That's amazing. From that, that route. You should, I mean, I'm sure I'm not doing it justice. So you should, yeah, no, you should get them to tell it. Um, but, you know, that was, that was where, you know, that was kind of both ends of where we were. At one end, the, these amazing games were still being made in bedrooms for PC. But at the other end, there was no infrastructure. Yeah. You know, not only was this a decade before Steam, it was a decade before you know any kind of meaningful online distribution uh, was really viable. So that scene was going on. There was definitely a scene in Japan. You're not far off when Cave Story first shows up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it was always much more multifaceted and you know, kind of bubbling under the new... Re- it was why I said at the beginning, you take your life in your hands. There's there's so many different ways of exactly. telling this story. And then, of course, there was, you know, there'd been all kinds of things happening in the um, in the CD-ROM scene. You know, you look at where Parappa came from and a bunch of Greenblatt's work had kind of come out of interactive multimedia projects that were often relatively you know, lo-fi and grassroots, but were kind of earning this cult status. And so they weren't technically games, but I think they were they were kind of part of a wider scene of independently creative digital I've never heard that before. I need to look into that. Art. I've never really occurred to me to think where did Parappa come from. 
I think that's right. So that's that's the art, not the game. Yeah, so yeah, the game yeah. Came very much out of the, the kind of Bimani tradition in Japan. But yeah, I think I think that's right. I'm it's okay. a while since I read up on it, so apologies if I'm wrong, but uh, that's what I remember. Um, so yeah, I think I think there was a you know there there was a scene, but I had gone from a you know a period where I I think before I joined Edge, I'd been doing a ton of like console history uh inhalation like i was like yeah. oh metroid is a thing i've never played a metroid game i'll play this one. well there's another metroid game oh this one isn't so good but it doesn't matter wait what this is final fantasy 6 is actually final fantasy 3 but final, oh okay so i'll play all this. Oh, wait, but really i should be playing um dragon quest there's a thing okay fine what can i get that yeah all right there's a you know and then and then arcade games that i didn't know and so i, I kind of it had been this really exciting period, but I'd been very much absorbing commercial game history, yeah. which is full of wonderful treasures. Um, but this was kind of emerging into a new world that I didn't know so well of weird stuff that the individual people made that actually probably was more of a callback to the stuff that I've been playing growing up on ST yeah, than, absolutely. than the stuff that I've seen since. So yeah, I remember, I remember that a lot. Uh, I can't remember the other questions you asked me. Get things that games just that like games that really stand out. Do. Yeah, that kind of in that same way where you know you you got your ST and you you played like games like Captive and you're like oh my god this is this is unbelievable and because you know it's it's hard to <laughs> to keep hold of that enthusiasm you know over time that a lot of games games are bit, I, mostly built on iterations. So I remember Half Life Two arriving. And I was leaving the next day on a fresh trip. I was, you traveled so much in that job. I was always on the go. So I was leaving on a flight. It was like I got home late from work, 10, 11 o'clock. I was leaving the next day on a flight. But can I swear on your podcast? Oh, yeah, of course. Fucking Half-Life 2 had just arrived. And um, I had a terrible migraine. But I had to play it because I was about to go away for a week and I couldn't not play it. And so I would play for like 50 minutes and then I would have to lie on the floor, <laughs> put my head on the floor to try and ease the pain in my head. And then I'd do that for 10 minutes till I felt like I could stand up again and then I would go and play 10 more minutes. Um, you really so you really have sacrificed a lot for your craft. <laughs> Getting arm massages, think, lying down in the middle think, of a yeah, migraine. I think I, had, I think I had a diminished sense of what was sensible at that point. Um <laughs> I mean, Manhunt loomed very, very large. I did. I spent a lot of time doing press, uh, uh, mainstream press interviews for that game. Um, oh, of course, that it, was around the kind of the, the 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 banning of it, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and no, and nobody wanted to touch it with the barge pole because it was nobody had a vocabulary for talking about that stuff. And so I ended up because I was really passionate about games abilities to tackle hard subjects and because i felt like that was a game that was at least thoughtful and had a commentary to make about the content that it was showing um i ended up going on the radio a lot to um i don't know if you've ever done british radio but the, the bbc uh maintains a lot of unmanned interview booths yeah 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 like rem country. remote places all over the yeah. place yeah so you like knock on a you got like, you're waiting outside a residential apartment at you know at 10 p.m because you're going to be on a late news show and a you know a tired looking 
lady appears and lets you in and then leaves and now you're just in this you're in this empty apartment with a cupboard in the corner that you go and sit in and you pick up a headset and four minutes later you're on a live news broadcast and then six minutes later you're on your way home because that was all that takes yeah yeah yeah. so i I, that seemed like a big part of my life for a while was doing those and i don't know i mean i haven't been back to manhunt since and i think i would probably have a more uh informed critique of it now than i did then but i don't regret being willing to stand up and say i think games ought to be allowed to cut you know to move into difficult transgressive territory and these are products for adults and where they can be products for adults and this is certainly no worse than a bunch of other stuff that you don't protest because it's you know in a in a movie exactly theater or whatever so and that is still really like it's still probably one of my f- it's probably not one of the best rockstar games i'm sure if i revisited it but in in my memory of it it's still one of one of their their best games it really evoked so many different feelings i mean and it was just such a a brilliant game like in and of itself the actual playing of it was just amazing there was some really good stuff in there and the the stuff it like because it, it played around with you having a headset really yeah it was really smart and so you had the headset on so you could hear whatever his name was start weather storm what was the yeah device? i think it was it was like Stark something weather. like that we seem to be hanging up on the stark thing so maybe not but yeah, it's sure interesting. yeah it weird uh so you were hearing him but they forced the microphone to be live and so i remember i was playing it and someone else was cooking dinner and it was ready and they yelled through to say dinner was ready and i went just coming and then because i'd gone just coming into the microphone all the goons heard me because it's a noise about stealth and noise and kick the shit out of me <laughs> and it was I and mean, it's weird because that makes no sense yeah but actually it did it then kind of reminded me that that as a real uh, with real physicality that i had to control myself in the real world um if i was going to be successful in this game and i'd never i'd never had that experience before that was that felt really electrifying um and so like i i I mean i should ask this like how how was being the editor like getting to that stage because i i recall that being quite a fast uh transition but maybe i'm misremembering it was it's funny that we're talking about manhunt i ended up in a position of you know, medium to big responsibility pretty quickly. Yeah. Partly just because of how staffing was working. Uh, and also because I, I was on fire for the thing. So I would, I would never miss an opportunity to, you know, jump in or, 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 you know, take over responsibilities on yeah. something. Um, so I was from a pretty early stage, I was doing a lot of the feature commissioning and the, um, games, selecting both the games to be reviewed and then the people to review them and then because Edge doesn't have bylines on the reviews when the reviews come back uh, you're you have to be very confident that the review is speaking for the magazine as a whole these are not we don't run, Edge didn't and still doesn't run no, no, them it does, it does do bylines oh does it see I'm so I don't Tony Cole's I, got the first ever byline oh, in Edge don't wow I know right. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, I didn't know that until he told me. But no, that is amazing. Um, it's also amazing that I still call him Taunt just because yeah, one time well, course, at EC- yeah. one time at ECTS they misprinted his name badge. <laughs> <laughs> so that thing has lasted for fourteen years or something now. Uh, so 
yeah, I, you know, you, 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 you wanted to really understand where the reviewer was coming from yeah, no, absolutely. and what their con their points of context were. So that sometimes meant there was an amount of back and forth where you were like, you were saying this thing, but it doesn't feel to me like you're taking into account the way this game did that, where this game did that. And then the review would come back and go, no, 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 I am because the thing you're, you're not seeing is this thing. I was like, oh, okay, well your text isn't quite convey that. So could we change it to this? And the review says yes. And so often that didn't happen, but sometimes there was an amount of work to get there. Um, and so taking over as editor was, was only sort of, in some ways, wasn't a very big change at all. The, the, the only bit of the magazine that I hadn't, I didn't feel like I had a heavy involvement with was really the cover choice. Okay. Um, a lot of the, well, I mean, I was, I don't mean to suggest I was doing everything, but I, I had kind of worked across yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much the other bits of the, the, uh, the mag, I guess things like, um, columnist choice. And then every few years, whoever happens to be editor at that time may get to do a kind of more substantial redesign, but we'd had a redesign fairly recently when I was working there. So we weren't going to do another, um, and mostly it was mostly my time as editor. In, I keep saying editor in chief because in America, editor just means contributor, and you need to say editor in chief if you okay. want to say that you were actually the editor. So that's why I said so grandiose. But in terms of like heading up the thing, it was really it was very dominated by new by new hardware stuff. So mm -hmm. um, uh, the Wii came out in that period. Um, and oh god how did the rest of it fit together ps3 was just about to hit or had just hit um and so there was a lot of that and i did try i think with not much success um to be more aggressive about putting new content on the cover yeah uh, it always been angling a bit for that because i always i mean mostly just because i love edge when it gets to do weird strange treatments yeah um, so we ran the Heavenly Sword cover, um, which if you don't, I think if you, is this true? If you don't count the bikini crotch shot of the dead or alive beach volleyball character, which incidentally I think is a magnificent cover. Um, but I think that was the first female character who had the whole cover to herself. Um, Surely there was a Lara Croft at some point. Oh, uh, that does sound likely, doesn't it? Although I do I can't but, picture it though. Oh yeah, no, there was one. There was one. Because there was that. I can't remember what the anniversary was recently. What was the recent anniversary? Edge four hundred maybe. And they did a really quite fun kind of breakdown right. of who has been on covers and what right, types right, of right, games oh, have been on covers. And it was like that. there was one of like there was like six or seven maybe of like women on the yeah, cover. Yeah. It's pretty miserable. Yeah. And then we tried to do some um, some more indie stuff. But, I mean, I think I, I wasn't – I was maybe a little out of my depth for a lot of that. I, I hadn't had to deal with triangulating between um, – Because it's almost an entirely know, different job, like, essentially. You, you're not – Pretty much. Well, this this bit of it definitely is. Yeah. And, and, and I, nothing I'd done before really would have prepared me for it. So you have game publishers coming to you and saying, hey, we've got this we've got this game and we could give it to you, but we could give it somewhere else. Can you commit to the cover? And I'm like, I, I mean, it definitely sounds interesting, but, you know, how, how to know. Yeah, it's not something you want to just gonna... make a decision you want to make on a whim, you know. But Right. 
and but at the same time you have of course a set of business pressures coming from inside the yeah. magazine publisher going hey you know we need to make sure that this month we get a good sell through what are you well not this month but you know we, we need to um yeah so that's have good commercial that's uplift. That's what diplomacy you, essentially what well, yeah i mean it, and it's and then what are the what are the fans want but then actually what do you want edge to stand for which sometimes means doing things that won't be popular but it's worth it in the longer term to kind of be a magazine that feels like it has some substance substance and, and, yeah. and a, a view of its own uh and so yeah i think if you you know I, I i can't say that i put together the best run of covers in in edge's history that's for sure um and then also by that's by the by the you know i was there for four and a bit years I think I did 50 issues and by the time you've you know you're releasing a new product every four weeks it's a pretty relentless thing. yeah I, 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 um, it's it, it's really surprising like how not surprising it's not surprising at all but like it's like the, the difference between making a magazine and like what you have now with you know the constant kind of rolling news like the it's such a different creative process to, to make that thing because you're making a thing as opposed to just writing about things you know it's, it, in, it's, it's, it seems like it's a small distinction but it's such a huge difference in how you approach it you know it's uh, a little bit like making a mobile puzzle game that releases every three weeks well yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> that feels very familiar yeah it's it's a very very different uh setup um so yeah i don't i think i, I think the the biggest contributions I probably made there was I think I did write some good stuff. Uh, not that you know, because of the byline situation. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think I brought some good people in to write for it. So um, Brandon Boyer, I mentioned Ben Schroeder earlier. Yep. I, I noticed Ben on the edge forum because he wrote a very angry, unbelievably entertaining thing about the logic of loading bars and the games that had the best visual solutions for the logic of loading bars. And I was just so impressed with his, the precision of his thought and his knowledgeability about games and the, the enjoyability of his prose. Um, he was my first pick when we needed a new writer and I cajoled him into coming and working for us. And just and recently we, wrote uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, or one of the writers did. of Horizon he Zero Dawn, which is, is exactly. very well written. Um, it's the, the game I'm playing, well, not right now, but... I just finished it. It's amazing. I was right. so don't, don't thoroughly. Me, I'm not going to tell you anything, no. But mm. just I, I was really delighted with how much I enjoyed mm. it. Yeah, I'm having, a, I'm having lots and lots of fun with it. So then we needed some. We often needed somebody to review games for us in America because we would have a print deadline. A game would be coming out in America. It sounds crazy, but this was absolutely true. We didn't have time to get it shipped from America to here to get it to a reviewer here to give to have them play it in time so we were keen to find somebody local who could do it and ben said oh this is going on the which, oh wow which forum the hmm. neogaf okay um who's who's we've been chatting he's good and I looked at his stuff and I was like, yeah, this guy seems to know what he do. Got in touch, said, hey, well, you're at some, I think he did the, I think, no, that can't be right. I was going to say it was the Chibi Robo 
GBA version, but that uh, must have been later. Chibi Robo is a game we could talk about in terms of games doing things that I didn't think they could do. Uh, so Brandon started out um, doing GBA reviews for us in America. And then when we expanded Edge Online, he came on and basically ran all of the content there. Um, and now he's Brandon Boyer. So that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that worked out. Um, you know, and there's a few. Oh, you actually, we've mentioned has, you know, um, gone on to great things. Um, no, it's 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 it's, it's that was a great pleasure. Yeah, like, and I I, I totally do want to talk about GB Robo, but also I'm conscious of <laughs> the time that we have, so I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna push forward, and I'm gonna actually we're gonna sort of take a, a brief aside for some relatively quick fire questions, although they never really turn out that way. Um, Margaret, I'll do my best. If you had to play a game. With death for your your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? I'm very bad at games. That's I'm okay. basically I'm basically dead. Um, <laughs> could it could it be the New York Times crossword? It could. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not as visually so, appealing I mean, as, as some other alternatives, but still, yeah. it's actually, fine. the the um the old the old DS Times crossword was pretty decently put together. Uh. I mean, Scissors, Paper, Stone would give me a 50-50 chance. Oh, no, see, that's quite clever. Know. That hasn't come I, up before. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess maybe at my best, maybe Guitar Hero. There was a time when... That's a very Bill and Ted answer, though. Um, at, the, at the time... You were talking about Wipeout earlier. Yeah. I could nearly do the first track of the original wipeout with the tv switched off that's pretty good so maybe that if that is a game genre <laughs> so right playing i think so I playing think so. 32 bit futuristic racing games blind <laughs> that might be as near as i get weirdly that, that like the, the, i've mentioned this on the show before i used to be able to do that with alex kidd in miracle world purely wow. from just rote repetition yes because, yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just muscle memory did it a thousand times um okay so we've kind of mentioned this in the, uh, previously but still um are you are you a particularly competitive uh, person when you play games no um i nothing distresses me more than having to play games with other people i loathe it um it's not it's not the point for me the world is full of people i have rich interesting interactions with people all the time games for me are this special precious private universe where I can be selfish and shameless and unobserved and honest and um, unfettered in everything that I do, the idea of putting another human being in there just seems um, dismal. I hate winning. I hate losing. If I lose, I feel ashamed. If I win, I feel terrible for the other person. Yeah, hate, hate, hate. Okay. <laughs> um uh, if you're if you're prone to such things, Margaret, uh, what is your worst mm. rage quit? I think I I think I I sad quit, not rage quit. Oh, mostly I'm like, oh, not again. <laughs> uh, I can't remember. I, can't, I don't think I've ever broken any controllers. Um. Yeah, I have much. I have because I'm not because I'm I love games so much. I'm not very good at them. I have low expectations of success. Okay. So rage quit doesn't, and then I and then I just don't play 
like I'm never going to be a spelunky person. I'm never going to be, I just, I'm, yeah, I'm never going to get anywhere. So I'm often not playing rage quitty games because I'm just never going to survive. Okay. Um, has there ever been a game that has consumed your life to the point where you've had to like, okay, I need to uninstall this and never play it again? I had a pretty intense relationship with Animal Crossing for a while. There was an amount of getting up at 5am to try and do things that I didn't think I could do at other times. Which um, uh, which which Animal Crossing version? Oh, first one, first one. Okay, the, okay. The real one. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, boring World of Warcraft answer, but yes, that was a very, very big um, part of my life for a long time, which I guess slightly puts the lie to the thing I previously said about multiplayer yeah. but i played i played it mostly as a single player game um i didn't i didn't i certainly i did well i did a tiny bit of whatever they were called grounds. no no i don't think i ever did a raid it sounded stressful um so yeah but i did i mean i put up many 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 hours into that game that was a that was a very big deal um, um go okay um, oh no, I've lost my thought. No, it's okay. I've got it. Uh, if like you know, games games are, are potentially capable of uh, evoking all kinds of emotions, but one of the 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 rarest is is laughter. So, Margaret, what games have really made you laugh? Oh, it is. It is like it is. They've. I'm not saying they can't be funny. I'm saying Do it's all just. The time. They games don't. are hilarious this oh. is, you're the only person that has had that response everyone else <laughs> no you're the, that's the yeah you know you're right it's really hard to think of a funny game I don't i yeah so there's a difference between a funny game and a game that makes you laugh yes um games make you laugh all the time i mean i mean horizons made me laugh plenty not at the not the games made me laugh because stupid funny things happen i mean you know games are especially these days, are, are full of physics or at least physical interactions, and that means scope for pratfalls. Yes, I mean, um, yeah, that, that is... Okay. There's a there's a bunch of... And I'm, I'm, I'm going to struggle now to do examples on the fly, but I will hunt you down and tell you them later. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely games... There's, there's obviously the games with funny writing, and those will be the answers presumably that you get all the time. Yeah, yeah, like to talk about Monkey Island and stuff. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, those don't. I have to say, those don't really do it for me. Um, it's the. I mean, Animal Crossing is hilarious. Since we just mentioned Animal Crossing, there's so much sly, funny humour in that. With um, the, you know, the mortgage that you're paying off, and the, yeah, you know, the way Mr. Rossetti talks to you, and those kind of things. Um, We're gonna let's ask me other questions, and then as we go, I'm gonna think of funny games to prove you wrong. I'm, I'm that's gonna. My, that's, that's my goal now. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's. I suppose it's. It, it, it's like there are funny things that that will happen, but very rarely will there be like a game that's built to be funny. That's funny, if you know what I mean. Like that isn't. Some people don't set out to make a comedy game. I don't think. No, I mean, some people no doubt have. Amp, but Amp, Amp, Amp three. Amp three is a good one. But again, that's more that's more like the game is really good and then they've just put in all these wacky, really funny things. They spent fifty percent of the production budget on animation and comedy. Really? 
Yes. That uh, well, okay. I'm gonna put Amp Three then. That's <laughs> that's going on the official list for funny games. Okay. Well, then we'll 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 move on. We'll forget about that. You can you can say things as they come to light. Um. So why or you know what prompted you to then make this switch into you know making games as opposed to, <laughs> to writing about games? I kind of slid into it. So I I. Uh, I decided to make a move away from Edge, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. I was just real tired and felt like I was never going to be able to figure out what the next thing was while I was working that hard. Um, And so I moved back to London to figure out what I was going to do. But then kind of before I even got started, I was lucky to get um, some calls from from um people i knew a little um and so I, I got a chance to do some kind of consultancy on design consultancy or or press and pr consultancy on some console titles um which was exciting but also got me close enough to AAA that i didn't necessarily feel like i wanted to go any further um and then I got a call. There was a woman I'd been on a a committee with for a games festival that was mostly run by people who didn't seem to know or care very much about games. I didn't know her. Was that in Edinburgh by any chance? No, I'm not going to be specific. Okay, about that's fine. The nature of that festival. Uh, and a stupid thing was happening in the meeting that seemed vaguely relevant and because i'd just seen it and i couldn't resist it under my breath kind of just to myself because i was so frustrated about what was going on i went leroy because <laughs> um, someone was just making a, you know was was messing with, or whatever i can't even remember and this woman probably the only other woman or one of the only other women um next to me across the table was cracked up and uh that was alice taylor who uh, had just moved to, to Channel 4 to run their new digital output for uh, educational digital output for teens. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that she was just about to go on maternity leave. So she very kindly asked me to be her maternity cover. And this was just at the point where Channel 4 had decided to... They have Channel 4 in the in the UK. Um, they're, not a, they're not state funded, but they're kind of state subsidized in that they get access to the airwaves for free in exchange for a commitment to providing educational content. Mm-hmm. And they've, they identified that they wanted to deliver that, uh, concentrating on teens on 14 to 19 year olds. Um, and this was at a point where they realized that the investment they're making in televisual output just didn't make any sense. They were putting educational TV shows for teens on at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, because that's, you know, that was a time slot that was free and nobody was watching it. Teens were on their phones all day anyway. This didn't really seem to be working. So they made a decision and I think they're, they've evolved this policy since, but they made a decision then that they were going to spend 100% of their budget on digital and games, which was a pretty radical thing for a TV company, a TV broadcaster yeah, to do. And so, and then the other exciting thing was a lot of the educational content that they focus on isn't curriculum based the the bbc does a great job of you know helping you practice your french verbs and you know drill 
arithmetic. What they wanted to concentrate on was soft skill uh, stuff that, that didn't tend to get taught. So that's, you know, financial advice, mental health issues, sexual health, um, digital literacy, all of these different kind of things. Yeah. So I, I had a chance over the next two or three years to advise and help shape a bunch of really, really extraordinary projects that, that um, you know, ranged from, from a, a kind of cross-platform multimedia mental health project to history games about the Norman invasions to uh, a sexual health game called Private for the Xbox, which was set inside a diseased vagina. And you led a small troop of tiny soldiers wearing uh, condoms for hats who had to correctly battle with the right treatment a number of uh, sexually transmitted uh, diseases. How have I never heard that of they that? Met. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I think because there was a moment when I had to ring the guy at Microsoft and say, can we, uh, can we put this <laughs> on um, arcade? And he said no, uh, but it was yeah, it was one of the more amazing. But it did come out on the Xbox, it was, though. It came it came out on XBLA. Oh man, uh, or, is... or or like indie or whatever. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was it was um, uh, it was made by Dan. I've lost his second name, but the Ben there, Dan that guy. The oh, okay, yeah, it, um, he's doing the Kickman now. Dan Marshall. Dan Marshall, that's him. So Dan Marshall made it. Um, and all of the genius about it is his. And there's also a diseased penis bit. And I, would, I wouldn't like your listeners to think that we failed to include a diseased penis. So there was a lot of that. <laughs> um, and so that was wonderful. And I was I was working a little bit with the guys at Game City to get the Game City Festival up and running, which was yeah. a real treat. Um, and I'm still doing some bits and pieces of writing. But it, it was all still sort of a little bit peripheral. Um Although I learned a huge amount and I built up a big network of of people making interesting independent digital Absolutely, games. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I'm still really proud of some of the stuff that, that came out of that time. And that was very uh, much around like where indie was like sort of stratified, like here is a thing, this is this is a, a genre, not a genre unto itself, but you know, it was a, a, a known quantity as opposed to you know, a fringe thing. Yeah, it was. It was certainly. It was discovering that it had applications beyond yeah. being like weird shareware, um, homebrew projects, and kind of understanding that there were different business models and there were different kinds of. And it was the app, the app, the store as well. Obviously, it was a huge app was, change. The app that. was on its way. Yeah, this was all probably just just a little bit at the beginnings of that. Like we all had, you know, you had iPhones, but not app stores at that yeah. point. But it was coming, and that and then that did change an awful lot at that point and so how like how did you end up where you are now i suppose i mean that that seems like a trivial question because i'm sure there's mm. a million different reasons for that but like in terms of like moving countries and you know like what what, what happened with that like did you have a specific I, I suppose yeah what i'm asking is is did you have like a specific goal in mind something that you wanted to do or was it just a case of meeting interest in people and then seeing new opportunities and just seeing where that led you. What's the longest story I can tell right now? <laughs> um, okay. So I was helping to run a, 
uh, experimental UK game studio called Hide and Seek. We yes. did a lot of physical-based gaming stuff. We were digital crossover stuff. Uh, wonderful group of people. Um, and uh, we, I think, managed to make some wonderful things along the way. There was nobody else really doing the kind of stuff we did, apart from a New York-based studio called Area Code. And we knew Area Code a little. I knew, well, I knew the guy who ran Area Code a little because I'd hit him up for... Um, comments and quotes when I was working on Edge because he was smart and knowledgeable about a bunch of stuff. Um, and I knew uh, a woman called Katie London who was one of the leads there because she'd come, we'd run a little conference in London and she'd come over to be part of that. And late one night, news broke that Zynga had just bought Area Code for an undisclosed millions of dollars. Was this pre or post Drop 7? This was post Drop 7. Okay. Uh and this was electrifying to us for two reasons. One of which was uh, Alex, my business partner, I remember, was in India. And he called me from India because <laughs> we were both freaking out so much. Because it meant two things. It meant, A, big companies were shopping for weird experimental studios. And maybe we were a weird experimental studio. And did that mean there was like a different way that our business could grow? And then also, who the hell was going to do all of the work that area code was doing in new york if area code wasn't there where was that business going to go and so i was just about to go out to gdc or soon after i was going out to gdc can't quite remember the timings and uh i said well look i'll i'll uh, try and have dinner with katie london and find out what you know find out more yeah and uh katie said um oh i'm gonna bring my colleague because he knows a little bit more about the business deal than i did great we had dinner. Informative, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Katie has to go somewhere else. This other guy and I go on to the Nidhogg party, the launch of the Nidhogg party. Oh, amazing. Uh, which is fun. And then it turns out that the Nidhogg party is over and me and this other guy are the only people left. And now he's my husband. Oh. <laughs> and that's the shortest I've ever told that story. Um, so he, he decided I was, yeah, a bunch of impossibly, impossible, well, a bunch of impossibly romantic sounding stuff happened that in yeah. practice was slightly less romantic, uh, when it's March and everything's freezing. Um, <laughs> what he knew who I was cause I'd written about his games. What he didn't know is that I had said to a friend of mine, three or four years before hey there's this game I know something this is just this amazing game it's called Drop 7 I would sight unseen marry the man who made this game is what I said I remember saying it I remember typing it with the chat uh, and I basically did just took me longer <laughs> I should have just called him like it you should have just yeah it would have saved a bit of time uh, uh, and then see I promise I'm answering your question so I, you know, just take, make the most of both opportunities. So I came to New York to open the hide-and-seek New York office in the yeah. hope that we could capitalize on some of this business, also to marry Kevin or the other way around, one of the, whichever way sounds better. Um, <laughs> and then a couple of years later, we wound down hide-and-seek because it, it just turned out that the kind of business that had funded both companies was basically going away partly because of the move to apps and a bunch of other stuff yeah the way free to play was changing we couldn't really make it work anymore um 
and then one of my husband's old colleagues I'm also I have a role over here where I um, I'm an industry liaison for the NYU Game Center so part of that role is that I spend a lot of time trying to get to know all the different game studios in New York um, and an old colleague of Kevin my husband said oh you should come in and meet these guys at Dots I was like oh sure okay and um, came in and had a just had a brilliant conversation about games with people who love games. I was like, oh, it's cool. I didn't know that they were going to be like that. And then they said, oh, you should come back and meet this other person. And I said, oh, sure, okay. And then that time I walked in and there was a lot of people and they started asking me real hard questions. And after about three minutes, I went, oh, this is a job interview. <laughs> I didn't realize. I didn't realize. And so I kind of stumbled my way through that job interview and I guess I did well enough that they said, hey, look, do you want to come and make games with us? And I liked them a lot, so I said yes. And that was two and a bit years ago. And and I'm still here and still loving it. That's so, amazing, a full-on stealth yeah. interview. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they were trying to ambush me. I think they no, 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 but it, it just, was obvious. But, that's probably uh, for the best. I think people would do much better yep. in interviews if that was the case. Yep, yep, yep. It certainly, certainly the first one was a, a real chance to just kind of relax and, and get to know people here. So... Um, yeah, that worked out great. So we were, they were only sort of 15 or 16 people then. Um, and we've grown a lot since. And I launched their, our newest game, Dots & Co, last year. Uh, and now I'm, I'm currently working on Two Dots, which is our biggest title still. Um, Very exciting, uh, Margaret. It's pretty nice set of situations to be in. That is amazing. And, and all of the things that uh, took you to, to New York have clearly paid off. You're doing very, you know, happily married and all that. Doing well in the studio, that's good. Oh, no, you're making a presumption about the state of Well, I am, but... purely from how fondly you told the stories of, of, of meeting him. So, of course, I'm just going to be happy. Um, well, just to sort of finish up, I guess, I, I want to try and... Again, this is a ridiculously open-ended question, and there's probably a million answers. But nevertheless, like, I suppose just in the past few years, like, are there... Are there games that have kind of stuck out for you that have had uh, some kind of impact for, for whatever reason, you know? That's hard. Do, it's really do you hard. think it's... I mean, it's hard because it's a ridiculously open-ended question, but also do you think there's an element of, you know, the older people get, the harder it is to have that sense of the new and the exciting and uh, I didn't know they this... could do this. There's some of that. I have to say, this right now is the first time in a long time where I'm like, I don't, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. I haven't finished Horizon yet. I can't play near. I haven't finished Horizon. Wait, uh, Breath of the World? Are you kidding? I've, what am I going to do? Am I going to buy that console? Yeah, maybe because it seems really exciting. What are we releasing Final Fantasy XII? Ah, so yeah. I haven't, I haven't had a a moment like that for a really long time, and I don't think that means that I haven't seen significant work. I'm, it's not, I'm not cudgeling my brains effectively right now and i mean i've um i'm pretty much consistently on a igf or an indicate jury and i i know that some of the work that i've seen there has been really substantial yeah absolutely significant. um but yeah i think i i think i'm kind of getting the spark back a bit um which is great i was i was starting to fear that it wouldn't happen but it turned out just i needed the stars to align in the right way absolutely and i am I, I this has come up on the show before like my my enduring love of, of final fantasy 12 which you just mentioned 
and I think I've you're probably one of my most quoted video game writers purely for that that one article you wrote about Final Fantasy XII, which was just just amazing, like really really good. And I don't mean to uh, embarrass you or anything, but it's so so amazing. Like it, one of the it really just clicked something in my head that I I knew that I understood but didn't quite understand, and it was very satisfying. I can't believe I've only written one article about Final Fantasy XII. You've probably which written loads. It was, it was the off-world article about right, right. how Final Fantasy XII is essentially the scientific method. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, true. It's amazing. It is, it yeah. is. Yeah, just that, that little I, insight I, was is so such a satisfying kind of click in my brain. Um, I, I am, if I have a design quest in life, it's that I'm endlessly trying to replicate. But, you know, and explore some components of that game. I think it's, I think it's an absolute masterpiece yeah i'm very um, excited i, I, I hope, really desperately hope it does yeah exactly there's a remake mm, coming i'm really hoping yeah, it holds up yeah it's, it's it's scary but yeah it's does i mean even if it doesn't even if it's not good it doesn't matter the original is still there yeah <laughs> the, exactly. the ideas are still there um yeah it's it, that's a pretty important game for me well let's let, let's let's wrap up um if if there's anything actually, you know, if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up, anything that you wanted to mention, anything you had in mind, please do uh, say now. And also just, you know, mention where people can find you and your video games, etc., on the internet. Um, you can find me at Ranarama, as previously discussed. Um, anagrams don't work. <laughs> uh, you can find the Dots Games um, at dots.co um, or search Dots Games and you will find us. Uh, the only thing I didn't manage to do was sneak in a plug for my husband's amazing game. Can I can I do that? Absolutely, please do. So my husband Kevin Cantien, uh, one of the driving forces behind the immaculate genius that is Drop Seven, um, is hard at work on his next title, which is Home Free, um, which is a game about being um, a dog lost in a procedurally generated city. So you are a dog. You're in a beautiful city. You don't have anywhere to go, uh, and you have to figure out how to survive and who you can trust and where to find food and all kinds of other um, dog priorities. Um, I, I mean, I obviously pr prodigiously, bottomlessly biased, so don't yes. trust me. Uh, but I do find it—it's the game that finally made city games work for me. That the thing that drives me crazy in in GTA or a bunch of other even Shenmue, um, is that the, it's bullshit. There's a city, I can't, you're telling me that I'm a human in a city, but then none of the things work that ought to work if I'm a human in a city. Yeah. And it's just fake and it frustrates me. And it turns out that actually being a dog in a city completely solves that. Of, cor of course you can't talk to people. Of course you can't go into that store. Of course you can't get on a bus. You can be on the street and you can interact with the people that are there and there are objects and, and, and obstacles that are, are good and bad for you. But you have a completely different, the, the city feels like this much more alien, perplexing, unpredictable environment because you're viewing it all. You're viewing it all from literally the perspective of the dog. That's the other amazing thing is if you drop um, your perspective of a city down from six foot to two foot, it feels so different, it looks yeah. so different. I mean, um, ba based purely on on animated gifts that you you've shared, it, lo it looks like a masterpiece. <laughs> it's it's a very beautiful game, and he is a very smart man. And so is that out now? Is that available? The best. It is not out, but follow him on Twitter and bookmark, um, you know the the 
the possibility of of grabbing it on early access or wherever it initially debuts i it's it's a special special thing I think. i'm looking forward um, to it that's all i wanted to say good was that okay for you margaret did you enjoy chatting was that good it was heaven oh Absolute lovely bliss. lovely start to the week <laughs>